Welcome to 2015 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Coco Abobloir, a head of economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2015 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. What does the myth of Cassandra, daughter of Priam, king of Troy, and the fable of the frog in boiling water tell us about the planet and the need to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050? Let me start this episode with these two quick short stories. In Greek mythology, Apollo was so smitten by Cassandra's beauty that he provided her with the ability to predict the future. But when she refused his romantic advances, he placed a curse on her, ensuring that nobody would believe her warnings. She was left with the knowledge of future events, but could neither change them nor convince others of the validity of her predictions. One of the dire consequences was the tragic fall of Troy to the Greeks. Now, for the boiling frog fable. If you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will jump out. But if the frog is put into a pot of normal water, which is slowly brought to boiling temperature, the frog will eventually be boiled to death due to its inability to understand the danger of the gradual temperature change. The moral of the story is to walk out before you need to jump. Or as a trader once told me regarding portfolio management, if you are going to panic, it is best to panic first, or at least panic early. So. The question I want to ask now is, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, aka the IPCC, and its newly published sixth assessment report, the Cassandra of the Modern Era? And is the frog simply humanity, with the important caveat that humanity is also the one increasing the water temperature? You must have guessed it by now. The subject matter of this episode is climate change and the energy transition. How are investors and companies transitioning their portfolios and business models. Let's start our investigation. Unless you live in a cave or manage to completely disconnect on a remote private island this summer, the worsening effects of climate change have been all over the news. The unprecedented number of natural disasters so far this year has been staggering. First, huge wildfires raging across Europe and North America, caused by record temperatures and dry conditions. They destroyed lives and livelihoods in Greece, Turkey, Italy, Russia, the US and Canada, to name the worst. Second, severe flooding in Western Europe in mid-July due to heavy rainfall. Germany, Luxembourg, Belgium and the Netherlands were the worst hit. Some of these floods were a 500-year event causing over 300 fatalities and large damage to infrastructure. An article from floodlist.com reads, over 920 people killed in floods and landslides in July 2021 in India, Afghanistan, and China, and the list goes on. Third, a quick look at tropical cyclones in 2021 on Wikipedia shows that there were 98 systems causing 569 fatalities and $25 billion in damages. Haiti was severely affected by tropical storm Grace mid-August. The U.S. was just slammed by Hurricane Ida. Fourth, 
Record temperatures have also made the news. The highest ever recorded temperature on Earth was 54.5 degrees Celsius at the Death Valley in California in August 2020. According to EarthSky.org, July 2021 was the world's hottest month since records began 142 years ago. Fifth, according to an article in the Guardian, over 1.5 billion people have been affected by drought this century, with an economic cost of 124 billion dollars. A UN spokesperson calls drought the next pandemic as it destroys food and water supplies globally, and the list goes on. All of this sounds like the end of times, a horror movie, a human-made apocalypse with the biblical figure of the four horsemen being unleashed. Okay, let's pause for a second before I get depressed, or worse, I depress you for the rest of the day. Been a great summer break. We are gradually reconnecting with colleagues, friends, and family. The sun is shining. There is a nice little breeze. I even won my morning squash matches three days in a row this week. Covid nineteen cases are rising, but seems under control. Everything looks fine around here, doesn't it? Hey, but wait! I won't be fooled. I don't want to end up like that frog in boiling water. Going through life unable to notice gradual changes that will become big problems later. Here's why: in late July, there was a big but short thunderstorm which led to severe flooding across London, as the drainage system could not cope with so much rain in such a short period of time, the equivalent of a month in 45 minutes. My basement was flooded. A power cut in my house. Prompted me to go down to the basement to check the fuse and circuit board. To my horror, I saw water gushing out the inspection chamber where all the drainage pipes connect. Water was already knee high. My box of tennis balls, my car roof box, washing machine—you name it—everything was flooding as if there were toys in the swimming pool. I was lucky though and managed to find what was probably the last water pump available after a two-hour journey. Across West London, cleaning up and damage survey was not fun. Okay, to recap, things are not looking very good on the climate front, and yet markets are hitting new highs. We are seeing revenge spending everywhere. It's the Roaring Twenty Twenties. Fiscal and monetary stimulus, successful vaccination rollouts are all coming to the rescue of the economy. This is simply because the water temperature. Is obviously not hot enough for the proverbial frog in us to panic, at least for those not directly affected by climate change. To be fair, however, ESG priorities and energy transition have also been all over the news, and decisive statements on bold commitments are being taken everywhere. But most people are not panicking yet. Now let's have a look at how bad things are expected to get, and then. At what investors and companies are doing to transition their portfolio and business models? Let's first take a quick look at the IPCC report, Climate Change 2021: The Physical Science Basis. Warning: You might want to make sure you are seated before we start. First of all, what is the IPCC? It's an intergovernmental panel on climate change that was established in 1988. 
is the UN body responsible for assessing the science related to climate change. Its objective is to provide political leaders with a regular scientific assessment on climate change, its implications and risks. It also puts forward adaptation and mitigation strategies. Thousands of people from all over the world contribute to its work. This latest report was prepared by 234 scientists from 66 countries. It highlights how human influence has warmed the climate at a rate that is unprecedented in our history. Scientists have even suggested the name Anthropocene for this new geological era marked by the impact of Homo sapiens, that's you and me, on Earth's climate and ecosystems. But did you know that the first time a newspaper published an article about the global warming potential of burning coal was in August 1912? We've known since 1824 that certain atmospheric gases trap heat. That's close to two centuries ago. And in 1896, Svante Arrhenius was the first scientist to claim that fossil fuel combustion may eventually result in global warming and proposed the relationship between CO2 and temperature. But back to the IPCC report. Its findings were quite a wake-up call for me. So I've decided to really take the time to share with you nine of my main takeaways. It's a lot, but believe me, it's important information. So here we go. One. In 2019, atmospheric CO2 concentrations were higher than at any time in at least 2 million years, and concentrations of methane and nitrous oxide were higher than at any time in the last 800,000 years. 2. Global surface temperature has increased faster since 1970 than in any other 50-year period over at least the last 2,000 years. 3. Since 1900, global mean sea level has risen faster than over any preceding century in at least the last 3,000 years. Is London going to be underwater in a few centuries? We are on an island after all. 4. Over the next 20 years, global temperature is expected to increase by 1.5 degrees since pre-industrial levels. 5. Global warming of 2 degrees will be exceeded during the 21st century, unless we rapidly and deeply reduce CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions in the coming decades, achieving the 2015 Paris Agreement goals will be beyond reach. 6. Evidence linking extreme weather events such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts and tropical cyclones to human activity is strengthening. 7. Extreme sea level events that previously only occurred once in a hundred years could happen every year by the end of this century. This means more frequent basement flooding. A quick word of advice, by the way, make sure you install non-return valves in your houses. 8. Further warming will amplify permafrost thawing, resulting in a massive time bomb as methane, trapped in the permafrost, will heat the atmosphere a lot more than CO2. 9. Changes to the ocean, including warming, more frequent marine heat waves, acidification and reduced oxygen levels, affect both ocean ecosystems and the people that rely on them. This means more famine, hunger, food shortages and inflation potentially. Okay, so that was a snapshot of the bad and ugly news. 
What about the good news? While stabilizing the climate will require strong, rapid, and sustained reduction in greenhouse gas emissions to reach net zero CO2 emissions. Limiting other greenhouse gases and air pollutants, especially methane, could have benefits both for health and the climate. This could stabilize global temperature in 20 to 30 years. Ahead of the crucial COP26 climate conference in Glasgow in November, all countries, and especially the advanced G20 economies, need to join the Net Zero Emission Coalition. They need to reinforce their premises on slowing down and reversing global heating with credible, concrete, and enhanced nationally determined contribution, aka NDC, that lay out detailed steps. So, easy peasy, no? How loud does Cassandra need to get? If you have not panicked by now, maybe it's time to jump and take action. And speaking of actions, let's now look at what the corporate world is doing to tackle this challenge. Companies have made big announcements on major commitments to reduce their emissions and do their part to facilitate the energy transition. The move away from fossil fuel is key, but this might be easier said than done. One of my colleagues sent me an article on the number and quantities of commodities needed to build clean energy. Picture this. Building a single 100 megawatt wind farm requires 30,000 tons of iron ore, 50,000 tons of concrete, and 900 tons of non-recyclable plastic. A 100 megawatt solar development requires cement, steel, aluminum, and glass 150% greater than the wind farm. The 1,000-pound lithium-ion battery one can find in most electric vehicles requires roughly 20 pounds of lithium, 30 pounds of cobalt, 60 pounds of nickel, 90 pounds of copper, 110 pounds of graphite, and 400 pounds of steel, aluminum, and various plastic components. In total, mining firms will need, on average, to extract about 90,000 pounds of ore to produce that volume of usable material much of which will be extracted using mining trucks that can haul 400 tons of material in a single load and get a sporty 0.3 miles per gallon of diesel. The bottom line here is that some commodities, and even oil, still have a role to play. Let's now look at this from an investor's standpoint. What does it mean? Reducing the carbon intensity of investment portfolios, or even their temperature, is a growing focus for investors. We talked about greenium in our Green versus Greed episode. The appetite for investment products and solutions with low carbon footprint have grown in popularity with trillions of flows into ETFs, sustainable funds, green bonds, positive impact notes, etc. Companies are gradually improving the disclosure of their carbon emissions. Scope 1 looks at their direct emissions, Scope 2 refers to indirect emission from energy suppliers, and Scope 3 includes the whole value chain. However, the quality of the data is very heterogeneous. We all know the adage of garbage in and garbage out. Regulation is going to help standardize carbon data reporting and ESG in general. Furthermore, it is not about pollution today, but rather the trend. The famous Paris-aligned benchmark where the greenhouse gas emissions should be 50% lower than that of the investable universe. This exercise becomes even more complex for credit, rates, FX, and commodities. How do you design a carbon-neutral multi-asset portfolio? It is today both an art and a science. 
intellectual property and rigor are key to avoid greenwashing. Indeed, there has been a lot of controversy recently on this topic in the asset management industry. So, to put it simply, buying companies with low carbon emission and selling those with high carbon emissions might not be necessarily effective in making an impact. Favoring developed markets at the expense of emerging markets on carbon emission grounds could also be too simplistic when you consider the massive outsourcing of asset-intensive businesses from the former to the latter and the entire global supply chain. The key point is to incentivize corporate management to invest in new technologies that will lower carbon emission over time, via carbon capture technology, for example, providing lower cost of capital and financing on green and positive impact projects. There is a massive opportunity for innovation and creative thinking. My eldest daughter, who's a proud member of Generation Z, showed me this amazing quote. When you start believing everything is possible, then a lot of things stop being impossible. This is exactly the sort of thinking we need. Let's hope her generation does a better job than ours, the Generation X and the baby boomers. To quote Mark Twain, they did not know it was impossible, so they did it. Let's now get the point of view from a company at the heart of the energy transition with our special guest from Shell. It is my pleasure to welcome Ed Daniels, Executive Vice President for Strategy, Portfolio and Sustainability at Shell. He joined in 1988, that's 10 years after I was born, with over 33 years of experience. Hello, Ed. Coco, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So this podcast is about energy transition. But before we go into the topic, can you tell us a bit about Shell and its business model? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, well known to many people, uh, our brand is out there with the millions of customers that we serve uh, every day in retail stations and in business to business environments. We're an integrated energy company providing energy solutions to our customers. Thanks. I've listened to one of your brilliant lecture, which is online with um, Imperial College, where you said that Shell produced 2% of the world oil, which is quite, a, quite impressive. Uh, but you also made a brilliant point around energy transition by saying that the world population will go from 7 to close to 10 billion people by 2050, and yet will have to cut carbon emission by 50%. This is a huge challenge. What needs to happen in your opinion and what is the solution? Cuckoo, it's an enormous challenge. You know, it's climate change and energy transition, biggest challenge facing mankind. It's a very real uh, issue and it needs an urgent response. At Shell, we're very much in line with the ideals of the Paris Agreement that we've got to get to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, on the planet. And when I think about what really needs to happen, at the highest level, it's a compact between governments, corporations, and civil society. I think we have to work together. I don't think there's any one body or institution that can solve this. This is a global problem that requires global scale solutions between the bodies that I mentioned. I think we've got to transition the energy system from one that is today largely based on hydrocarbons to one that is net zero. So that means transitioning away from 
gasoline for motor vehicles, for example, and moving to electric vehicles. The way we think about it in Shell is to think about it sector by sector by sector. I think the challenges in different sectors of our economy are very different about how that decarbonization happens. So, for example, decarbonizing aviation, flying, is going to be a very different challenge to how you decarbonize trucking or how you decarbonize manufacture of cement or steel. We have to address the entire system and we have to address it sector by sector. This is an interesting point. But in terms of Shell specifically, what are you doing to help transition the economy to net zero? And what sort of investments are you making today? So we launched our strategy, our new strategy in February of this year called Powering Progress. The centerpiece of that strategy is about working with our customers to get them to net zero by 2050. Our sense, our very strong sense, is that the the challenges that we have are how you shift demand, how you shift individual customer demand so that they want to take on clean energy products, low carbon or no carbon products in order to to power their businesses and their lives. We're investing in clean power generation to give the clean electrons that people want. We're investing in biofuels. We made an announcement earlier this week around uh, investing in a biofuels facility in our Pernis refinery in the Netherlands for aviation fuel provision. We're investing in hydrogen production that could well be used in truck applications, could be used in shipping applications, could be used in storage, the decarbonization of steel manufacture as examples. And then, of course, in addition to that, I don't think it'll be enough to provide only the low carbon or no carbon products. Some hydrocarbons will still be needed. And therefore, we have to have removal technologies in order to remove and mop up the remaining pieces uh, of carbon that are emitted. So carbon capture and storage, investing very heavily in a number of places in the world to bring that technology to life and to scale. We're also investing in nature-based solutions. So uh, whether that's planting of trees, preventing deforestation, uh, working to restore mangroves and peatlands, such that we're using the natural environment to absorb more carbon and therefore be part of the solution of getting us to net zero by 2050, fundamental uh, need that we have. Thanks for this quite detailed overview of Shell commitments. But there's a UN report that recently showed that all the commitments by countries at the COP21 in 2050, the Paris Accord, is likely to lead to not a reduction, but an increase of roughly 16% of carbon emissions if things were to continue at this pace. Do you think technology and investments are sufficient, or do we need something more on the demand side, for example? Decarbonization of the energy system uh, requires many, many things. I think there are many technologies that are already available. So, you know, battery storage for motor vehicles, production of hydrogen, the use and production of, of biofuels. These technologies are well known, but these need to be advanced and made at scale such that we can get lower cost, more effective technologies to decarbonize the energy system. But I think that won't be enough. If I think of jet fuel as an example, the production of biojet, jet fuel from biological sources that is you know, very low carbon, 
is going to be at least two to three times as expensive as traditional jet. So for me, the fundamental point here is sector by sector, we need to work with governments and other corporations and with civil society to say what policy prescriptions, what mandates are we going to put in place to to encourage and to frankly to force uh, the adoption of low and no carbon technologies and solutions. So the European Union, I know, is working on mandates, for example, of what proportion of jet fuel will have to be derived from low or, or no carbon sources. We need sort of either standards around tailpipe emissions or the banning of internal combustion engines, as the UK has done, for example. I think we have to put in place the right policies by governments, supported by corporations, supported by civil society, in order to drive the energy transition faster. The UN report is absolutely spot on that if you look at the nationally determined contributions, we're not making the right levels of progress. And for me, the challenge governments have, it's very difficult to have a, a one big lever in your country that says, this is how I drive down my nationally determined contributions. That's why I so strongly believe in this sectoral approach, because it is only when you go down to the level of detail of an individual sector that you've got a lever to pull. How am I going to decarbonize steelmaking? How am I going to decarbonize cement? How am I going to decarbonize aviation? Those sorts of practical policy choices, those practical developments of technology, I think that is the fundamental way we'll drive down carbon emissions and get to the goal of the Paris Agreement and get to net zero emissions by 2050. Thanks. One last question. What will Shell look like in 2050? Is it an endangered species or is it likely to evolve through a Darwinian process of evolution by climate change selection? Well, I think large integrated energy companies have a huge amount to offer in driving the reduction of carbon uh, in the energy system and driving us towards net zero emissions by 2050. I think large integrated energy companies understand and know the energy system, the complexity, the scale, the integration, the global nature. They understand it probably better than any. My view is we should be very much part and centre to helping make that transformation happen. In 2050, there'll be many things that you recognise about our company. You'll recognise the brand. You'll recognise our, our dedication and focus on customers and working with customers to help them drive energy solutions. What you won't recognise, I suspect, is the mix of products. The mix of products are bound to be completely different. There'll be a, a significant reduction, I believe, in our upstream production, a significant reduction in the sales of hydrocarbon-based product, and a very, very material increase in power, in hydrogen, in biofuels, in carbon capture and storage, in nature-based solutions. So the product mix will be very different, and our customers will be with us on their individual journey from where they are today to net zero emissions by 2050. Great. Thanks a lot, Ed. This was a very good insight. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, catch up in person at some point, but um, this wraps it up. Great, Cuckoo. Many thanks indeed. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So to conclude, saying you are going green, but doing nothing tangible or impactful is no different from the frog failing to save itself. 
And by the way, most frogs do look green, and I hope that you are not one of them. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors, and thanks to Ed Daniels for sharing some useful insight with us. I hope this episode has helped you get a better understanding of the energy transition and what is at stake. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave some stars on Apple Podcasts, leave comments anywhere you like, and spread the word. Whilst the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.